Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. A quick note about the foundation. Uh, We're embarking on our massive literature review to uncover every possible treatment for anxiety and depression and related disorders. Uh, We call it the Anxiety and Depression Codex. To find out more about it, go to FindingGeniusFoundation.org. And one last thing to tell you is that uh, the premise is if you suffer or you know someone that suffers, they go to a practitioner. Uh, The practitioner may know two or three percent of all the possible treatments. What if we could assemble 20 percent? If so, I think it would be a big time home run. And that's the goal of this project is to make a low cost or even free resource for sufferers and for their loved ones. So go to FindingGeniusFoundation.org to find out more. And today my guest is Matt Farrell. He's the founder of a YouTube channel called Undecided, has over 500,000 subscribers. Uh, he explores sustainable and smart technologies like EVs, solar panels, and smart homes. Uh, he lives in the Boston area, and he's a UI UX designer by trade. And uh, he's had a love of technology for years. So, Matt, thanks for coming. Well, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, tell me about yourself and what led to the creation of your channel. It's kind of a lifelong uh, obsession with technology and science. And my mind isn't very mathematical. So my life took me in a different direction. I ended up kind of going into user experience design, user interface design, and my fascination with technology never stopped. And so after working in the software industry for probably about 20 years, um, I worked as a creative director, ran teams. I kind of hit a midlife crisis of like, you know, I'm concerned about climate change and the environment, and I have this fascination with technology. I could just start my own YouTube channel and start talking about that stuff. So I just kind of started publishing videos to see if anything, if there's any traction there. And I was really surprised at how quickly my channel kind of caught on. And I quickly kind of hit on a formula for the topics I was talking about that kind of resonated with uh, viewers about 
kind of the intersection of technology and climate change. Is all this in relation to climate change or is it, uh, it, is it just the technologies themselves? It's the technologies themselves that more, I don't really talk about climate change directly. It's more about like, uh, you could get solar on your home and how does solar impact your energy use? How much, like what's the return on investment on those solar panels? And then also getting into the details of how do solar panels work? And then talking about new breakthroughs in solar, solar panel technology, where it's going over the next decade. Same thing for like battery technologies, smart home technologies, like what can you do to your house to make it smarter and work harder for you to help you save energy and just make your life a little more enjoyable. So uh, do you run into people that are, you know, skeptical about climate change? And at the same time, do you run into people that are zealots, like we're all going to die in the next five years type thing? And <laughs> yeah. what's your impression of both? It's I definitely hit a full spectrum of feedback across everything I hear. Everything from climate change is a hoax to EVs will never work to solar panels are a scam uh, from that side of things to the flip side, which is we're all doomed. There's nothing we can do. Just grin and bear it, I guess. So I, I get get it from all angles, which is one of the reasons why my name or the channel is undecided. It's more about like we're all kind of like trying to figure our way through this. And, you know, I don't necessarily have all the answers and there's certain things I don't know the answers to. And so in exploring these topics, it's about putting the pros and the cons out there, putting the facts out there, the science out there, and letting you kind of decide for yourself. And so that approach, I'm trying to reach everybody. So I'm trying to reach the people that might be climate deniers, but I talk to them about technologies in a way that hopefully make it accessible to them and interesting to them so that they kind of, they may not believe in climate change, but they may end up getting solar panels because they like the financial savings that they get or the independence that it gives them even though they don't agree with the climate change aspect of it. And I've actually had that happen. I've had people come up to me at events and thank me for videos and solar panels. And they ended up getting it because of the information I provided them. And there are people that definitely do not believe in climate change. So it, that's kind of why I kind of frame my videos on my channel the way I do. Yeah. I listened to a couple of them and you, you come across as very friendly and knowledgeable and you have, you know, good documentation on all your sources and it's a really good channel. I encourage anyone listening to check it out because it's very accessible. So I appreciate what you do just so you know. Thanks. I appreciate that. Question. I've asked this before and some people have kind of told me, and it, it's funny if it, if something like that ever came out, you know, you'd be killed for having it, but I want to see for electric cars versus gas car, a side-by-side -side comparison of all the inputs, all the externalities, all the pollution, all the, the, the everything. Does that exist? And if so, where is it? And what does it say? It does exist. It's often referred to as like uh, wells to wheels um, is often the way it's described. And it looks at the entire life cycle of mining to manufacturing of the vehicle, to the operation of the vehicle, to the disposal and recycling of the vehicle, as well as what it takes to manufacture the fuel source, whatever that is for the vehicle. There's several different reports, like there's some from the UN on this. There's uh, the Union of Concerned Scientists that have some really good reports on this. There's a bunch of reports you can find online that basically boil it down to the way it works out is that battery electric vehicles have a more harmful impact on the environment in the manufacturing phase than a gasoline vehicle. But over the lifespan of the vehicle, which is typically you know 15 to 20 years long, the battery electric vehicles come out so far ahead of gasoline vehicles as far as the overall impact from charging it to disposing it, the whole thing. Um, it's, it's not even an argument. It's like, it, it's just dramatically, dramatically better 
than a gasoline vehicle. Well, better in one way. Like, um, when did the two curves kind of intersect in terms of all the mining required for the rare earths, all the everything? Like, what what do the curves look like of again inputs and then outputs in terms of what happens to the environment? It's it's well, if you're talking about like like the, over the lifespan of the car, it's like within a two to three years, a battery electric car has gone past a gasoline car. If that's what you're asking about, it's pretty know. quick. Yeah, it's very quick. And, uh, but it also depends on where you live too, because some areas of the country, if you're talking about just money, not just the environment, some areas have really expensive electricity. Like I live in the Massachusetts area, which has very high electricity prices. So if you're just looking at electric cars from a cost value, it's like here, it costs just about as much to charge it as it does to fill a gas tank for an equivalent gasoline car. It's, it's not, they're not that far off, but if you're buying a, battery electric down in the South where electricity might be something like six cents a kilowatt hour. It's going to be dramatically cheaper, but regardless of price, electric vehicles come out way ahead just in a matter of a few years. What uh, to you, what's the biggest reasons why that is? What are the, the biggest benefits of electric? And then also gas, what are the, some of the biggest benefits we're leaving behind if we, if we swap? Well, right now, gasoline has the edge for just, you can go anywhere you want. There's no strings attached. There's gas stations, like feels like every couple of miles you can stumble upon a gas station. You could drive, you know, a thousand miles and not blink an eye because you're not going to worry about filling your gas tank where battery electric vehicles today are, st- it's still at the very beginning of the adoption phase. So the biggest downside to EVs in comparison right now is the charging infrastructure. Depending on where you live, if you're trying to do long road trips, you might have difficulty because there might not be enough charging locations along your path. Where if you live like in the Northeast, where I am, there's charging locations every 20 to 50 miles. So you could do very long road trips over here. But if you're like out in Montana uh, and you want to do a 600 mile road trip, you're going to have to plan ahead to make sure you're driving a path that has chargers on the, the path. So that's kind of the biggest difference today. But EVs, the thing that I think is the biggest benefit of EVs is maintenance. Just electric motors you're talking about ice cars, uh, gas electric gas cars. They have thousands of moving parts and all those moving parts take care and maintenance and they can break down at any time. An electric motor, you're talking about less than a hundred moving parts, sometimes 40 moving parts. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. So it's just less things to take care of. I've had my car for three years. There's no oil changes. There's none of that. It's just the standard maintenance of rotate your tires, check your tires. And that's pretty much all you have to do. So ease of use, ease of care. It's just, they come out way ahead. Uh, The thing that just has to catch up is the charging infrastructure. So what's that going to look like? Do you think that there'll be mandates that only electric cars can be, can be used 
and they'll just leave it up to the industry to scramble and put in the charging infrastructure or what does the charging infrastructure look like to you now? And what's your thoughts in the future for it? Well, Tesla has kind of, they are so far ahead of the rest of the industry. Their charging infrastructure is second to none. If you're a Tesla owner, you don't have any kind of range anxiety. You can pretty much drive wherever you want and have a charger within 50 miles in most places. If you're not buying a Tesla, that's where the charging infrastructure gets a little more over the wild west. There's companies called Electrify America that are catching up to Tesla. They're still way behind, but they're catching up. ChargePoint, there's other charging companies that are trying to fill that gap for the non-Tesla cars that are out there. But more importantly, right now, the, the Biden administration just passed, uh, they're going to be passing bills that are going to invest a lot of money into the infrastructure, like billions of dollars are going to be invested into EV infrastructure across the country. So this change is going to happen in the next, I would say, two to five years. You're going to see a very fast ramp up in the number of chargers that are being built out and partly spurred on by that that bill. Well, do you think, though, that there'll be uh, areas where, again, for whatever reasons, political or otherwise, that chargers are just not likely to appear anytime soon? Will there be yeah. states states or places where, you know, it's it's going to, yeah, they're just going to lag or not happen? Yeah, they're, they're just going to lag. They are going to happen, but it will just lag. Like I, I mentioned Montana. It's like if you're talking about low populated areas and states that have low populations, it's going to be a little more hit and miss. And like right now, Tesla chargers, if you look at a map of where they're located, it's like along the major highways through like Montana. But like as soon as you get off the highways, they just, there's nothing. So it's going to take a while for that kind of stuff to trickle out and get into those more remote lo- locations. But there are EV companies like Rivian that part of their brand is like the outdoor lifestyle. And so their whole approach is to go where most chargers aren't going. And they're planning on building chargers like near national parks and in in outdoor locations where people are going to want to go off-roading and things like that. So the industry is going to be filling those gaps, but it's just going to take a little time. And then um, I'm in Texas, so watch what you say. But wind, I'll explain why, wind and solar. You know, they, uh, they appear to comprised 21% or so of our grid. And in February, we had Snowmageddon yeah. where, you know, it snowed and the, the solar was knocked out. The wind was knocked out. And instead of having rolling blackouts, we just had blackouts for like a week plus. Do you think wind and solar are really up to the task or they're just kind of being pushed and there's not much uh, regard for their, their true efficacy? No, I, they definitely can work. The problem is we're kind of learning as we go, specifically for Texas. The part of the reason that the wind turbines kind of failed at that point, well, they didn't fail. They froze because they weren't winterized because why would you winterize a wind turbine in Texas? It doesn't get that cold where the wind turbines up in like Michigan, they never freeze because they've been winterized. So it's all about making sure that you're building out your infrastructure to be able to handle these more extreme weather events. So kind of Texas kind of got caught with their pants down a little bit. And the other thing to, factor in there is that that some of the natural gas pipelines froze. So some natural gas plants had to also shut down in Texas during that freeze. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. For the same exact reason, because they weren't weatherized, because why would you do it? It, It's Texas. It doesn't get that cold. So it's one of those, as the climate is shifting and changing, 
we have to rethink how we're building out our grid and our infrastructures to make sure that they can handle these shifting changes in weather and extreme weather events, these huge heat waves we're getting and extreme cold snaps that we're getting, where you got an Arctic blast, blast in Texas, which you would never expect that to happen. And here we are. And that's probably going to happen more and more frequently. I mean, what's, what's driving adoption of it? Is it, do they really work again? And under this current way we're doing it, the way we're servicing it, the way we're looking at it, the way we understand about wind and solar, if they're deployed, will they be deployed properly? Or are they going to be deployed in the way where it's like, oh, oh, well, yeah. we got to do this to, to work on them. You know? That That's the big question right now for the United States specifically. It's state by state, sadly. There's one of the things that we've learned over the past you know couple decades is energy storage is a must when you're talking about renewables. You can't just dump, you know, megawatts and gig terawatts of energy in solar and wind onto a grid and then like slap your hands and say we're done because you aren't able to store that energy so you get all this power during the day that just overloads the grid with more power than you need and then you don't have enough at night so energy storage has to go hand in hand with this and there's a lot of new policies and standards being rolled out because of the stuff we've learned about that like here in massachusetts they just passed a clean peak standard so it's basically going to keep energy storage in sync with how much solar and wind is rolled out the state. So it, it kind of ha- everything has to go hand in hand. There's also incentives for home solar programs here in Massachusetts, where if you get solar installed, there's a battery incentive so that you get batteries installed with it for that exact reason, because it allows you to manage the, the ebbs and flows of power over a course of 24 hours, not just a course of 12 hours. It's, it's essential. If you don't have that, it's, it becomes a lot more difficult. So, okay. Um, of wind versus solar, which one appears to be more viable? Which one appears to have a faster payback period and, and why? It's solar. Solar is, its price is dropping faster than pretty much any other energy source right now. Wind gets you higher levels of energy easily. So if you have a wind farm, you can, you're talking about megawatts and gigawatts of energy that you can output. Uh, solar is just per panel. It's cheaper and it's easier to roll out. It's, you can install it pretty much anywhere. Rooftops, you can make, uh, put them on top of carports. You can create, put them above parking lots. You can float it. <laughs> you can have floating arrays on lakes or off in the ocean. It's very flexible and very affordable. So that's part of why solar is kind of taking the lead. And what, what percentage of the U.S. Uh, energy is solar versus wind versus not? I don't know that offhand. I'd have to look that up. Oh, is it, um, I mean, ballpark, is it uh, 1%, 10%? I, I can't imagine it's like, I would guess that just to guess, I would get around, I guess around 1% ballpark, but do you know, it's, do it's, you have any idea? It's more than that, but it is a small percentage. Um, what what nation can we look to or learn from that has had a, you know, a significant percentage of their energy come from wind and or solar? If you're just talking about renewables, you could look to Canada because they have a lot of hydro. Um, but if you're talking about solar and wind, just look over at Europe. The Netherlands is almost completely renewable now with wind and solar. Sweden, Germany is getting there very quickly. So all you have to do is kind of look over to Europe. Um, they're kind of leading the way in that in that regard. But when we do look over to the Netherlands, for instance, like what what's observed? Like what's happened to their society now that they're mostly or completely on renewables? Like what, what kind of um, things have happened that are either expected or unexpected? A lot of the unexpected things, like if you look at Germany, it's like part of what I talked about before of you have to build out 
energy storage in tandem with renewable energy. You can look at places like Germany, which didn't quite do that. And they overloaded their grid with far too much uh, solar and wind power. And they made it difficult for the utilities and the grid to manage that energy because it was such, when you don't, when you don't need it in the middle of the day, that's when all your energy is there. And then it, at night, it's, it's called a duck curve because of the way it looks over the course of 24 hours. And then when it goes into that low swell valley, for production, that's when people are getting from home from work and it's turning into dusk and people start using the most energy. So what they were finding was it was kind of creating an imbalance of the system. And because of that, it created, you know, price fluctuations and energy costs actually started to go up. And so it was having the, an unforeseen kind of effect. But like I said, it was because Germany was kind of like blazing a trail and doing something that no other country had really done yet. And so it's those countries that have kind of been at that forefront that have seen some unforeseen circumstances and the rest of us that are kind of like lagging just a little bit behind are kind of learning from their mistakes to avoid that. In terms of alternative energy sources, how much of a share of the pie do they have? Like what's solar? And again, ballparks are fine. What's, you know, hydro, what's geothermal, what's wind, et cetera. Uh, Hydro of all the renewables is the biggest because it's been being used for, you know, 50, 60, 70, 80 years. It's been around for a very long time. That has the biggest piece of the pie. Um, I would say wind is probably next in the world, but is going to be overtaken by solar if it hasn't already. I would probably, my guess would be 30% of the world's energy is coming from some form of renewables at this point. What about, what about nuclear? I've heard, you know, who knows if it's true or not, but Supposedly now the new reactor types are a lot safer and they use like liquid coolant instead of control rods and you yep. know, they're more efficient and people are talking about building, I guess, smaller capacity nuclear plants all over the place. So what's your experience or thoughts there? Yeah, I've, I've actually done some research and topics on my channel about small modular reactors and they're fascinating because they're way safer than the older technologies. And because they're small and modular, they're easier and cheaper to roll out than building a traditional uh, nuclear power plant. I think there is going to be a huge influx of that over the next you know, couple of decades. The biggest problem specifically here in the United States is fear of nuclear. That's still the looming, you know, the Japan disaster that happened. You have Chernobyl, you have Three Mile Island. It's like all these, it's like the boogeyman of, of nuclear is still lurking out there. But if you're trying to look for the clean future of energy, it's going to probably be a mix of nuclear, hydro, wind, solar, because nuclear gives you a nice, clean baseline 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And if the price and the safety can get to where it needs to be, we're going to see a lot more of it. But at the moment, no matter what nuclear technology you're talking about, it's a lot more expensive than solar and wind. Are there any other energy sources that uh, aren't commonly known? Or pretty much like, you know, everyone knows about the major uh, potential energy sources. I think, I think it's everybody knows the major ones, the, the, the ones that are still lurking out there are more about, will we ever get fusion? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, there's nuclear fusion that's been being worked on forever. And the, the, the running joke is nuclear fusion is always 30 years away. Will we yeah, get no, there? I've heard that. Yeah. Uh, I just didn't know yeah, if there's any other technologies, people, you know, that are uh, so new or so unknown that the, you know, they're important or potentially important, but they're just unknown. No, not really. Okay. Fair enough. So what, I don't know, like what, what have you covered on your channel that really just surprised you? You know, you, maybe it was a misconception you had or like, uh, you know, the, the public thinks one way and 
through your work on the channel, you've really changed your mind. Like what, what things have you changed your mind about and why? It's what's interesting is we just talked about nuclear. I was definitely in the nuclear no way camp for a very long time. But as I researched and started to learn how these small modular reactors work and how safe they are and how there's safeguards built into them and they're easy to deploy, it became very clear to me that nuclear is almost a must to be able to achieve the amount of energy we need as a society, especially when you consider the electrification of vehicles is underway right now. And the world is shifting to battery electric vehicles probably by 2035 it's going to be hard to buy a gas car at that point. So it's like, that's just going to increase how much energy we need. And so for me, the biggest kind of turnaround in my mindset was specifically around nuclear. So, I mean, uh, in the U.S., how fierce is the resistance? Do you see nuclear coming at all? Like, have we built any nuclear capacity in the past 30 or 50 years? Or where is no. it happening if so? It's, it's basically been frozen in time here in the United States for quite a while. All of our reactors are in pretty good condition, but they're all very old. And you're talking about like here in Massachusetts, there's nuclear, but I think the nuclear plant is 50 years old, 40 years old. I haven't, I haven't been able to find anything about new plants being built, but with these small modular reactors and thorium reactors, which might be coming as well, it, it looks like there's a chance, but it really comes down to in sadly in the United States politics. It's going to be what freaks people out. Are they comfortable with nuclear? where I think you're going to get more nuclear in other countries like India and China and Europe. I think they're going to be much more open to that technology than we are here, sadly. Yeah, that makes sense. I don't know. What's your overall view of how people are going to use energy? What, what do you think is going to happen over the next, let's say, five years versus 20? I know it's hard to prognosticate, <laughs> but you know, let's try. Why not? Over the next five years, I think what you're going to see is it's home solar gain even more traction than it already has. More and more people buying electric vehicles, especially as Ford, GM, Dodge, you know, the standard brands that people like and know start coming out with their own EVs. I think you're going to see a lot more EV adoption, which is just going to increase the amount of energy we need to produce and use. So I think that's going to be in the next five to 10 year range. I think if you're talking 20 years out, I think at that point, when you're talking 20, 25 years out, I don't think any homes are going to really have natural gas anymore. We're probably not going to have any coal plants. It's all going to be some form of renewable or nuclear energy. And everything in our lives is going to be electric just because it's the cheapest, most efficient path forward at this point. Do you, do you have a, um, you know, on your channel, how many videos do you have? And do you have a curated set for people that, you know, have different goals? Let's say someone, you know, really wants to know the real deal and the, the true viability of all these alternative energies, for instance, like, do you have um, any pathways through your content or, you know, curated sets of videos on just wind or just solar or just nuclear, or again, you know, questions to ask, or what's the future, that kind of thing. Yeah, I, I actually do. Um, I have about 170 videos, I think at this point, and I have playlists on my channel, which break them down into future tech, tech that isn't quite here yet, but where it might be going as well as uh, a solar playlist, which is all about solar panels in your home and what it's like to live with them. Future of solar, which is kind of like where the industry is going. I have a smart home playlist. So if you're interested in what you can do with smart homes in your house, it's like I have playlists for how to do it, where to get started, all those kind of things. So I have breakdowns of all these videos to kind of get people started depending on what their interests are. 
Well, very good. Okay. And um, tell me the name of your channel again and where can people go to find out your info? It's Undecided with Matt Farrell on YouTube. You can also go to undecidedmf.com. It's my website. All the same stuff is there. And there's also the full-blown like scripts and citations of all my research are on every single post there. So if anybody ever doubts, you know, like, yeah, where'd you get that fact? It's like, I have all the research to back everything I say on the channel up. So mm-hmm. you can also start there. Well, very good. Well, Matt, thanks for coming on the podcast. It's really cool. And um, I'm going to check out more of your videos. I love your channel and I, I encourage listeners to do the same. It's, it's really a great service that you perform. So thank you. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.